2: star talk your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide star talk begins right now welcome to star talk radio i'm your host neil degrasse tyson astrophysicist and director of new york city's hayden planetarium joining me this week is comedian eugene merman eugene welcome back Hi, am. It's great to be here. You, you crossed the East River moat I did. around Manhattan, coming in from Brooklyn. Thanks for making that big trip. Sure, sure. It took about a day and a half. <laughs> That's right.
3: I had a Sherpa. It was fine.
2: That's what you need. Uh, this week we're talking about personal finance and the science of money management. And I needed more than you for the show to pull this off. Even though I
3: tempted Fidelity about (laughs) 10 years ago, you needed more than me.
2: Indeed, I did. Weird. So we reached, we only got the best for this one. We didn't find him walking the streets. We found him deep in the labs of MIT. Andrew Lowe, professor of finance at MIT's Sloan School of Management. And he's also director of their laboratory for financial engineering. Andrew, welcome to Star Talk Radio. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. And laboratory for financial engineering—like there are engineers everywhere, it seems. Absolutely. Are you an engineer? I am. Do the engineers you manage call you an engineer?
4: Well, you'd have to ask
2: them. <laughs> <laughs> engineers are particular about who they credit. Uh, they are to their to their to their tribe, and so presumably you're an expert on finance, but. However expert you are, you are not as influential as our featured interview for this episode of Star Talk Radio. That would be Susie Orman. She's got her own TV show. Do you have your own TV show? Not yet. She's <laughs> She's got best-selling books. Number 1 on the best Do you have best-selling books? Not yet. But you have books though. Absolutely. But they're so not bestsellers, are they? <laughs> I'm afraid so.
3: Is this is this how we're going to start it by insulting everyone who's a guest and then playing someone on television?
2: <laughs> no, I think he can take it. He's a tough guy. He does seem pretty tough. Uh so th- this is all about personal finance and I In my interview with Susie Orman, she came to my office, and we just chatted about this. I wanted to know from her point of view, because she advises households, American households, what to do with their money, especially those people who didn't have a clue. She's their first introduction on how to think rationally about what to do with their money. And so I asked her whether being good at math is a necessary sort of prerequisite to invest wisely, and this was her reply.
5: Here we are at the planetarium, and you look up at the stars. Do you need to know the calculations of how far that star is from the sun or how fast this is? Do you need to know all those calculations to really just look at it and appreciate what's happening and to have a slight understanding of it?
2: You don't need all the calculations. I mean, there are levels where you can can enter and still appreciate what's going on.
5: And the same is true for the stock market. All you have to know is I started with X. Do I have more than X or do I have less than X? That
2: would be like investment 101. Yes. Okay.
5: <laughs> and, and that's about all you need to know when it comes to math. Okay. If you're using math as an excuse as to why you don't want to invest in the stock market because you're saying, I'm not good at math, therefore I can't invest, that's equivalent to me saying, I don't understand science, so I don't want to look at the stars.
2: Or I don't want to bask in the sunset because it's beautiful whether or not you understand what the sun is doing inside. Is and
5: all you need to know when you're investing is what are you investing in, does it make sense to you, and how much money have you put in, and you need to watch it every month. That's all.
2: She says watch it every month. Yeah. I, I would kind of watch it every minute because yeah. I worry about what's going on on the stock market. It's, it's pretty scary stuff. Andrew, does it scare you? Well, it can.
4: Um, you know, I think that the stock market is pretty alien to most of us. In fact, I think Americans spend more time thinking wait, wait. about astronomy. I'm an
2: astrophysicist. When you say alien, I think the <laughs> rest of the universe. But you, you got another word there?
4: Well, in fact, I think that Americans spend more time thinking about astronomy than they do about finance. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, every night you look at the stars and <laughs> once a night. month
2: you see the moon. Yeah, How often you
4: do go. you look at your 401k plan? Never. Exactly.
2: Yeah, I, I have to remind myself that I even have one. Yeah. And, and so, so, okay, so there's an exposure factor here. So Andrew, do you? Uh, so, so Eugene, do you have a four hundred one k?
3: This is a great answer. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> For the, exa- meaning, I probably don't. But I'm also in uh, like acting unions that I think have maybe have started one, but I don't really know. No, the answer is probably not. <laughs> so I am just- not the best finance person to ask. <laughs> I'm like I. Th- I know I have a savings account, but I know there's nothing there.
2: <laughs> so this question about well, how much math you need? You're up there at MIT. That's that's like geek central there. And Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you're a graduate of my alma mater. Mm-hmm. I get to say that because I graduated before you, the Bronx High School of Science. Absolutely. And then you go on and get all these fancy finance degrees. And so it sounds like you need some high education to know what you're doing, given what your background is.
4: Well, you don't know, have to agree with Ms. Orman that uh, while more math can actually help you, the fact is that you don't need a lot of background to get some basics about what your finance is all about. And I think that a lot of people are scared to look – uh, but once they do, they find that it's actually a lot of fun, and certainly it's really important. Like gambling, <laughs> a lot of fun, like gambling and
2: addictive. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so so let me ask it because I got I got Eugene's answer. Andrew, is the stock market gambling? Well, uh, I don't think so. I mean, certainly there are some gambling. Andrew, that's a yes or no question, please. <laughs>
4: No.
3: (laughs) I believe what you mean to say is it's slow, not as dangerous gambling.
4: Well, you know, it depends on who's playing. I think that, you know, for most investors, they're trying to hold onto their uh, assets for the long run. Uh, but that's not to say that you
2: get some high-frequency traders that do want to make money, you know, on a on a you know very very high-frequency basis. So high-frequency means they're trading constantly, and they're not they're not buy and wait. These are day traders that have attention deficit disorder, right?
3: <laughs> so, so day traders are gamblers, regular people who put their money in mutual funds, or just a family that one day wants to retire.
2: Exactly. Okay, so you've distinguished these two cases. So so now, how about picking stocks? I've always been curious about whether my dart against the wall would do better than any kind of perceived intelligent analysis. Do you guys pick stocks up there at MIT?
4: Well, you know, we certainly – Do you have a stock club? Uh, We don't have a stock club, Uh uh, but we do have an investment club. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, You know, stock picking is one of these things where if you spend a lot of time and effort and resources, you might actually be able to do better than random. But for most typical investors, they don't have those kind of resources. So for them, stock picking would be a disaster.
2: Oh, so it's better to not engage at all with partial information than to put your money in thinking you know everything you need. Exactly. Just like the show Jackass says, don't try this at home. (laughs) Don't try this. Well, so so Susie Worman had comments on whether computers can or should pick winners or not. And let's see what she tells us.
5: Most of the people who say they can pick a good stock... They are using some computer method oh. to determine the stocks that they should You pick. know, they
2: don't say that. I look at them and it's like, oh, I'm just brilliant and intuitive. No,
5: they're either using some type of analysis, whether it's charting or whatever it may be. But there's usually now stock programs where they go back and they do this and they do that on it. So it's actually a very scientific way that they will pick their stocks. But then there is the other theory that if you had a little dart and you threw it and you hit something, it would probably perform just as well as somebody who used technical analysis.
2: So which of those is right, (laughs) the dart or the analysis?
5: Depends at which time you're looking at
2: it. Well, okay. So then the secret is knowing when to use one and not the other.
5: Here's the problem when you're looking at returns of an investment. They usually look back 10 years, and they'll say, this mutual fund or this stock returned X over these 10 years. So that's
2: an acceptable baseline, because we all know it's not a forever amount of time, but it's certainly long enough you think if they're good at it, it should reveal itself.
5: Yes, but let's say they're dating it from September of 2000 to, let's say, September 2010. Each year, a month or so drops off. And what happened? Oh, so it's a running sequence. It's a, running, running, it's a running, running sequence. And depending what happened, was it September 11th, 2001? Mm. Was it this? Was it that? So it can really skew the results. So you have to know, and this is where science relates, by the way, what is the evidence behind it? What is the time frame? What happened besides just what the stock science did? Science is
2: all about evidence. Otherwise, you're just making stuff up. That's you might right. as well just read a, t- a horoscope chart.
5: And the problem with using that for picking a stock or a mutual fund, is that it's based on human behavior, and human behavior cannot be predicted.
2: Humans always mess everything up. Always do. So, human behavior, there's a great variable. We should
3: have horses invest our money. (laughs) They would make no mistakes.
2: (laughs) Well, there are the intelligent horses in Gulliver's Travels, the Hoinehams. Did you remember (laughs) them? That's exactly who
3: I meant. (laughs) I meant we should get magic horses to invest our money. And that's a good solution.
2: So, Andrew, the human element, you're a professor in an institution where the behavior of humans is considered bad, right? In the sense that MIT is known for its technologies, its science. And any time human behavior comes in the picture, it just messes everything up. And that's what happens every day in finance.
4: Well, it certainly makes it more complicated. And one of the things we're doing at MIT is trying to understand how to put some kind of bounds on human behavior. And I think that there are times when you can predict what humans
2: are going to be able to do. And uh, from our earlier discussions, that's one of your research specialties is, right, figuring out – how people behave under different conditions.
3: What kind of conditions? Like falling or? (laughs) (laughs) Well, something like
4: that.
2: I mean, you know, it's very hard for me
4: to predict what you're going to be doing tomorrow, Eugene, since I don't know you and I don't know what your schedule is going to be. Even if you did know him, you wouldn't
3: be able to predict that. (laughs) I'm very erratic. (laughs) I feel I am always being followed.
4: (laughs) But on the other hand, if it turns out that there's a fire here in the studio, I have a pretty good prediction of what you're going to do. I suspect you're going to leave the studio as quickly as possible. Yeah, but why do I need an MIT professor to tell me that?
3: (laughs) Well, I, yeah, I see that you don't understand that I'm actually fire retarded.
4: <laughs> well, for, for one thing, you need to know when the fires are burning and when they're not. And I think that from the economic perspective, there are all sorts of different kinds of fires that occur all the time in financial markets. And
2: there's also a risk to being subjected to a fire, I guess, as well. That's right. And
4: it's really that risk that people react to. And sometimes they, they don't react as much as they should.
2: So is the, is the act of investing – An art or a science?
3: So are you saying that if people were on fire but didn't pull out of the stock market, it would be fine?
2: (laughs) That's that's exactly what he's saying, Eugene. You're you're following right along with us. Good, good.
3: (laughs) Just making sure.
2: So is it an art or a science? Well, you know, one of my
4: colleagues uh, is fond of saying that all good science is an art. Uh, You know, I'll back him up on that.
2: So that's like saying we – you take something and raise it to an art, or you bring it down to a science. Well, I think it's a bit—it's a bit of both. A little bit of both. Yep. Well, so I kept talking to with Susie about how do you know how what what how do you sustain success if you're going to be successful on the stock market? And let's see what she tells us. I remember Louis Wachter, where he said, "You are selling a stock because you think it's going to drop to someone who's buying it." Who thinks it's going to rise? And at that moment, I said, there is no hope. Everyone can't win in that scenario.
5: Yes, everybody can win in that scenario. How? And I'll tell you how. You bought a stock at 10, and it goes to 20. And you feel like you've made enough money. You've doubled your money, and that's fine, and you sell. Somebody else is buying it from you at 20. 20. And it now goes to 30. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Now,
5: they made money as well. That doesn't mean that the first person lost money. So it is possible that everybody can win. So
2: if we're in a booming economy, everybody's winning.
5: If we're in a booming economy okay. or if that stock is popular at that time is manufacturing or in some type of area that's popular, even if the economy is not booming, you can And win. these
2: are the important secret areas of uh, economic...
5: But here's the thing. You can give a scientific approach to how one invests, since if your premise is true that we don't know everything is random, there's chaos, do you win, do you lose? Here's how you can be a winner all the time if you ask me in the stock market no matter what happens. And that's through rather than investing everything you have all at once, to take a certain amount of money and buy the same thing over and over and over again every single month known as dollar cost averaging when it goes up so your money buys less shares when it goes down your money buys more shares but over time you will always come out a winner and that is for people who don't know what they're doing in the stock market is the only way they should be investing
2: well that's some advice for you right there when we come back we're going to investigate the impact of the 2008 recession. This is Star Talk Radio.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: PXG.com slash star talk code star
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. Our subject today is household finance and how much science is there to investing if there's any science to it at all. I've got my guest Andrew Lowe, professor of finance at MIT and one of our favorite co-host comedians, Eugene Merman. Eugene, Hello. you're tweeting at Eugene
3: Merman. Aren't I you? am. I am. I'm just tweeting at
2: my own name. I'm <laughs> not <what's> hiding <laughs> from America.
3: But I'm I'm out there. Um,
2: so so Eugene, before the break, you 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 had a comment. We, we had clipped from Susie Orman. She's, yes. I, I
3: interviewed her for this. No one's saying she's not on television. But I will say that the idea of
2: uh, when we, when we before we went to break, she commented yeah. on dollar cost averaging, which yes. is. Which sounds very sciencey. sounds very sciencey. you put the same amount of money in a stock if it goes up it buys a little less it goes sure. down it buys a little more and if she, what she said is if you didn't know anything about investing that's sort of investing 101 you just go in and try is, that is
3: that true though i mean if if you have a stock that's slowly going down and you invest in it every month I don't. It's, it just sounds ter- like terrible. Well, if but ha- I can't understand if I'm missing something, no. like if I don't know enough Andrew, math, Andrew, or if it's just a terrible idea to slowly every month invest in something that's plummeting, as opposed to divide your your eggs in lots of baskets. Okay, so
2: Eugene, we have an expert in the studio yes. for just that purpose, Andrew. Andrew Low. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so you know, as a geeky-headed academic, what
4: can I tell you? I've got to disagree uh, to some degree. Um, Like with any popular advice, uh,
2: there are some elements that are useful. That advice is is useful in some occasions. That's right. So you're not disagreeing with the advice. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is that's not – as widely usable as as she's implying is
4: well, what you're well yeah, let me give you an example. Okay. for example, when stocks go up and down and up and down, when they cycle around, then dollar cost averaging can actually be useful because what goes up must come down, what goes down must come up, and by dollar cost averaging, you're smoothing over those bumps. But you know, as Eugene pointed out, if you've got a sinking ship, it's probably not a good idea to keep investing more money in that sinking ship. Okay, it's hard so,
3: to tell if something's sinking too.
2: Exactly. Right. How, how do you know if a ship, is, a ship is sinking rather than just going through a, a, a lull? That's right. You don't. And so, Well, then, what? Uh, so,
3: <laughs> see? I can't believe I don't give more financial advice to people <laughs> with my massive observation
2: skills. Let's get back to Susie Orman. I had asked her about the 2008 meltdown just to see what insights she might have had to that. Uh, Meltdown that basically sunk America into a recession.
5: The meltdown in 2008. Could have been avoided, but not by the everyday person understanding whether it was a variable rate mortgage or a fixed rate mortgage. It could have been avoided if the banks, the financial services companies, and on and on, administration, the whole, the the whole, whole thing chain, decided to care more about people than they did about money. There was no securitization on these loans. What does that mean? Securitization means you come to me and I'm the bank, mm-hmm. and you want to borrow money to buy a house. I lend you the money to buy the house. Now, I care about you because you're paying me back, so I'm going to make sure that you are Because we're together. We're in in a
2: bind together there.
5: However, I don't care about you if I know as soon as I lend you the money, I'm going to turn around and sell your loan or your security to another bank. Then I don't care whether you're going to pay me back or not.
2: And you're on to your next deal.
5: And that's what made everything go down.
2: So gone is the era of your personal banker who's caring for you, your present and your future.
5: Was there ever such a thing? Well, (laughs) that's
2: what we tell ourselves. Yeah,
5: they cared about their own future.
2: Is Andrew, so she's saying it's all about people. Now, that certainly would have been the case if if your banker really cared about you. Mm -hmm. I don't know whoever feels that about their banker ever anymore, but she's got a point. If they cared about you, they would help you get through what right. might be a financial
3: stress. They wouldn't sell your loan to someone else and leave the country. And
2: leave the country. Or they wouldn't sell you – they wouldn't give you a loan that they didn't think you could pay back even if the computer model says you could right? or would. Andrew, right?
4: Yeah, but you've got to remember that there's a good reason why we had securitization. This idea of uh, creating packages of loans and being able to get more and more money into the mortgage system was really an idea that came about through this whole notion of the 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 ownership society, our politicians wanted to provide more uh, affordable housing to lower income individuals that couldn't afford it. So ownership of real estate. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so we wanted to increase the amount of ownership that uh, the uh, uh, people in the United States were able to undertake. Did you see the meltdown coming? Uh, actually, you know, my in
3: two thousand. a yes
2: or no question. Did you
4: tweet it? Let's just ask this:
3: Did you tweet about the meltdown uh, before it happened?
4: We didn't tweet. That's it. the only proof we could have.
3: That's right.
2: Well, uh,
4: actually, we published an article about it. In well, fact,
2: in two thousand and five. Wait, 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 wait. So remember? Okay. So you published an article in two thousand and five. The real question is: How often do you publish articles about the uh, demise of the stock market? And is this just happen to be the one that got published? within a zone of when it actually happened. Well, so what's the baseline of your predictions?
4: That's a great question. Uh, but it wasn't right. ar- an article that we published. It was actually a New York Times article that wrote about our research. Uh, in September of 2005, we actually uh, had a Sunday New York Times uh, reporter uh, write about the fact that we were – uh, predicting uh, a very significant disruption in the hedge fund industry
2: because of these kinds of markets. I like that, a significant disruption. Yes. What's that <laughs> euphemism for? <laughs> Big blowout. <laughs> if,
3: if only Malcolm Gladwell had seen it in 2007 and written a book, this could have all been avoided. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so but there's the, had you known about it, had everyone known about it, they would have invested in a way that would have exploited the drop and then it wouldn't have dropped. Isn't that right? Isn't not that? Isn't that a kind of a... Uh, a, 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 if you know it's going to drop, you're going to bet against that.
4: Yeah, that's one of the Zen paradoxes of finance.
2: Ooh, exactly, Zen paradox. I knew Zen had yeah. to get in here at some point. <laughs> I'm glad it has.
4: Yeah. So clearly, not everybody knew about it, but uh, there but were. You knew. There Where was, was your money? What did you
3: do with all your money?
4: Actually, my money was invested in a hedge fund that I had started, and uh, we were actually able to get through the crisis reasonably well.
3: When that happened, did you call all your friends and make fun of them? Uh, that would be uh, <laughs> that would, that be, would rude. be rude. That uh, would be. And rude. please
2: quantify what you mean by reasonably well. Uh, something like a twelve percent return. Oh, it's return. Sell. Yeah, yeah. Instead of a forty percent drop. Right. Yeah, yeah, I would call that reasonably well.
3: I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna just say now, hearing that, math is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and, anyone- and my
2: dollar that I gave you, I want a dollar forty when I, when, we, when we're done here. <laughs> you got you made a dollar twelve. A twelve. That's <laughs> right. So uh, in my interview with Susie or- Orman, uh, her name is spelled S U Z E, as you surely know, and I'm tempted to call it Sue's, but she's Suzy Orman. I asked her, what what was her reaction to these complicated investments, strategies that people have? Because that clearly isn't another level of math that most people wouldn't get. And let's find out what role that plays in this business. We read about these exotic investment instruments. Yes, I can tell you that some of my colleagues, you know, helped invent some of this stuff. So is science and their mathematical brilliance... Is that bad for the market? Yes. <laughs> okay,
5: next question. <laughs> no, it is bad for yeah, the market yeah. because here's why it's bad. People walk into their investing life already thinking they don't understand it. Nobody wants to be able to say, especially a man, they do not want to say, I don't get that. Can you explain it again?
2: Yeah, it's not in our DNA. Not in your DNA. Can't admit it. Can't you won't admit even
5: it. ask for directions, sir. So if you won't even ask for directions, you are not going to say to a financial advisor, I didn't understand anything you said. Mm. So that financial advisor, the more complicated the investments got, the less people were willing to say, I don't understand it. Just do it. And here's what's so very sad.
2: There's a whole psychology to yeah, all of
5: this. The financial advisors didn't even understand the investments as well. They just knew the commission that they were going to be paid Period. to sell this investment. It's and a that business was it. transaction. Was a business transaction, and they did not even know what they were selling. Because you can ask any financial advisor on the street, give me a succinct definition of can a derivative. It. They cannot do can it. Can't do it. So if you can't define something, you can't understand something. If you can't understand something, you're about to get yourself into trouble.
2: Susie Orman telling it like it is. But it seems to me that if you do understand it, then you not only won't get into trouble, you'd be flying high. Is that right?
4: Professor Andrew Lowe. Well, you know, there were a number of hedge fund investors, including John Paulson, that did understand it and that bet against it and made literally billions of dollars. So it is possible, but it's complicated. And like anything else, it takes
2: education. Right. But does that complication, yes, it accrues to your advantage, but does it exploit The decisions of other people in ways that leaves them at a disadvantage?
4: Well, I think that it can, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a zero sum game. Can or does?
2: Well, right. So, well, there it is then. Yeah, that, he walks away with billions, and everyone else is like in the poorhouse.
4: Well, but on the other hand, what he's betting against is the fact that housing markets continue going up, and it gets to a point where it's insane. So one could argue that he's actually doing a service by telling people, "Look, you guys are
2: out to lunch. This when, makes no sense." When
3: you say one could argue, you mean he could argue, <laughs>
2: and he did argue, <laughs> yes, quite effectively. That's it's the right. academicians one can argue. Yeah, yes.
3: <laughs> one could argue that it's great to make billions of
2: dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, th- so the, these financial crises. Is there a way to prevent them in the future? I don't think so. Um, Well, what what do you do up there at MIT? Well, I'll tell you. Financial crises – He keeps his money in check.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He's just hoping there's no war that takes away
2: (laughs) America.
4: Well, you know, financial crises are like a force of nature. You can't legislate away hurricanes. But what you can do is you can prepare for them. And I think that we can actually prepare for financial crises even if we can't get rid of them. And preparing for them actually is 90 percent.
2: Well, if preparing you know, for them means I put my money in my pillow instead of giving it to the bank, no, no, then I don't lose my money and therefore there's no financial crisis no. at all. Well, but maybe uh, in a refrigerator, which <laughs> is safer. Uh, they, see, that's the
4: problem. And I think uh, Ms. Orman would agree with that. If you put your money in the refrigerator, you earn no return. You're going to have a very
2: hard time retiring. I think wait, 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 wait. I'd rather earn no return than you- drop 40 percent.
4: I think
3: you have no idea how much money I want to put in a refrigerator. <laughs> so let's first of all start there. You first start
2: there and you can retire on what you exactly. fit in your refrigerator. Exactly. Uh, no, no. So my point is, so what if it has no return if everyone else is losing money? That's a tantamount to a return. Sure. For a year or
4: two, that's not a problem. But if you think about a 20 or 30-year horizon, when you're investing money for your retirement, inflation can eat away at the value of your wealth. Yeah, that whopping
2: 1.5% inflation is going on today. For now, but remember the 1970s and 80s? We had inflation of 15 or 20%. When we come back, more on the financial state of America and the science behind it. Today's show, we're analyzing the science of finance. How much sense does finance make? (laughs) That was a pun.
3: I I put it together. I was going to comment on it. I was going to leave it at peace.
2: That's the baritone voice of Eugene Merman. and Of course, we have back in the studio Professor Andrew Lowe, finance expert, academic finance expert from MIT. Thanks for being in New York for this. You're at a conference now, aren't you? That's right. And Yeah, so thanks for taking time out of your day to do this. Uh, you can uh, – StarTalk Radio has a website, and it's starttalkradio.net. And I tweet the universe, mostly brain droppings. If you're interested, follow me at Neil Tyson, N-E-I-L-T-Y-S-O-N. In this segment, I want to talk about the technology that has been brought to bear on the execution of financial trades. Because in the old days, Andrew, what was it? It was somebody with a ticket who would walk it across an aisle, and that ticket was an instruction to buy or sell somebody's shares. Now it's done, like, in a nanosecond by a computer. At the speed of light. At the speed of electrons through wires, and even at the speed of light if it's a wireless connection. Mm-hmm. So is this – how do you feel about that?
4: Well, you know, this is progress, uh, and, uh, you know, one has to deal with it. Uh, but well, you sound like it's bad. I think that it has some unintended consequences.
2: Let's find out what Susie Orman says, and then we'll come back to your unintended consequences. As she I want ref- to know what Andrew
4: said. No, I'm just <laughs>
3: kidding.
2: As she reflects on the role of technology in how finance is now conducted. Technology has influenced how trades are conducted yes. on, on Wall Street. And now – There's no person. There's no runner. There's no billet. Is that good or bad? I mean, it means it happens instantaneously. A buyer and a seller are found immediately.
5: I think it's good because... These are more of
2: these jobs that are not coming back.
5: I understand that. Mm -hmm. But again, hopefully other jobs are created somewhere because of technology, as you were saying. But it's easier to track. It's harder to manipulate the systems. Now, years and years and years ago, when there were all these people on the exchanges, especially on the option exchanges... The guys and there were mainly guys then would get together and say, let's take him out. And they would get together and they can manipulate it and get one of the traders out by ganging against them. It's not so easy to do that anymore. So I like that there are computers. You can go back and see what happened. This doesn't make sense. But at the same time, you have crashes that happened in May 10th of 2010, where the market went down a thousand points in one day because of a computer glitch. So would that have happened if we didn't have computers you know you never know so that's a lesson to make it better not to not do it at all that's correct right but i think computers are essential to keep up with the global economy we now have you know back then we didn't have such a global economy today you are basically
2: traded 24 7 because some market is open somewhere in the world that's
5: right so you need computers to do that
2: so andrew do you like computers in their applications to the manipulation of money in the world
4: well, I do like computers. I think that they make things faster, smoother, more reliable. But at the same time, every once in a while,
2: computers have glitches and we have to deal with those glitches. And, and those glitches come from humans who had programmed the computers. Yeah.
3: But it is how we will defeat robot armies in the future. <laughs> so it's, it's a little comforting, I find, that they make mistakes.
2: That, that, in fact, that's the, the matrix scenario, right? Yes. You can out hack a, We hacked the program. But so, so if these, if computers are manipulating money all over the world and human beings program those computers, Can you program it in a way that channels a billionth of a penny into your account every day and no one will notice it, and then you walk away with a billion dollars?
4: Well, in fact, you know, years ago somebody did just that. They basically collected the very, very tiny slivers of, you know, one millionth of a penny and they ultimately ended up trying to defraud a bank of that kind of money. They were caught and now we actually have double precision mathematics uh, on our computers.
3: uh, How how long did they get away with it
2: for? I think it was probably a year or two before somebody discovered this. Wait, is this a lesson to not do it? Or the fact that there a hundred other people who did it that you don't know about.
3: It's a lesson to do it for half a year. That's <laughs> the lesson. Don't do it for two years. I mean, how many billions of a cent do you, you, need? you only a, have a.
2: You only have a story of those people yeah. who were caught, not those who weren't. Well,
4: but I, I very quickly, we figure out how to improve our computers in the same way that now we have online shopping. You know, early
2: days, you had problems. We figured out how to deal with those problems. And so that... When you say deal with them, what do you mean? How to close, the, lo- close yeah. the Close these uh, loopholes. What were the
4: problems with
3: early online shopping?
4: Oh, well, you know, people would uh, take your credit card numbers and be able to, uh, you know, charge uh, you know, other oh, items. Oh, you mean stealing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> you see. You could call it Problems. That. <laughs> I You're, think you mean identity theft and stealing.
2: My favorite of these was someone got a, a booklet of payment slips for a piano they just bought, and they accidentally one day used the last slip in the payment sequence to pay. And then the next week, they got back the letter. Thank you for completing all your payments for the piano. <laughs> it's now yours. It, wow. it had no concept of how much total money was paid into it. It was only checking that you must oh, wow. be done when you use the last slip, because oh, right. they're so all sequentially would use slips numbered. Out of order. Right, right. Who, who oh. would possibly do it? That was an early glitch in the oh. computer system. Yeah, I bet they fixed that pretty quickly. <laughs> so, are these there algorithms that people come up with? Algorithms, by the way, is an Arabic word uh, dating from a thousand years ago. Uh, when mathematics was big mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and it's still
3: popular today. <laughs> don't, get, so? don't get so down on you, it.
2: Sorry, let me clarify. When algebra was invented in the Middle East, yeah, uh, in in Baghdad actually. So uh, there are algorithms that people apply mm-hmm. to either buy and sell, and they go and they're at the beach waiting for the algorithms to do their thing. That's basically computer taking control of a portfolio. And That's it, right. And you endorse this or what?
4: Sure. I think, you know, as long as you you, you do it responsibly, uh, these algorithms are actually very helpful because they automate the management of portfolios that would be impossible to manage with, uh, you know, human intervention. You mean huge, unwieldy portfolios. That's right. Large numbers of securities
2: across different countries.
3: Even puts and calls. Absolutely. I
4: barely
3: know what that is. You know, I was ready to go with you on that and I said,
2: no, he really doesn't know
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's two of the eight words in finance that I'm aware of. <laughs> sounds <laughs> sounds good.
2: Yeah. And so, is the is the uh, what I'm curious about is in this world of managing and manipulating money, what what role does emotion play?
4: Well, I think emotion is hugely important because ultimately you're dealing with human investors. And while all of these algorithms make it seem like we've got scientific principles for investing, at some point. An individual has to decide whether or not they want to buy or sell. And so emotion uh, can actually be the uh, downfall of even the savviest investor.
2: So uh, every emotional person should have a computer black box algorithm in their utility belt to invoke it at times when they're just emotionally distraught and they can't make rational decisions. Or
4: or to be able to come up with uh, good rules that will work and deal with these kinds of emotional stresses.
3: So, if I can put em- enough emotional stress against other investors, I can potentially come out on top. That's right, perfect.
2: <laughs> Let's get back to my clips with Susie Orman. Uh, we chatted briefly about r and d and what role that plays in sort of the growth of our economy and what what a company might need to do to make that work for them. Let's see what she has to say. Can you come up with the magic number the magic percent of a company's revenue that they should spend on R&D?
5: No, I can't because so many things are at play right now, especially given that they still haven't recovered it's hard to invest logically in r&d research and development when you can't even meet your own payroll you're about to go you under get, you're about to go under you have all these people you can't even pay the debt like ask right. the government look at the government right now you're asking them to invest in research and development and some of your things when what do they want to do they want to get rid of the epa right? they want to get rid of planned parenthood they want to get rid of all of these things they want to cut
2: pbs they want to out, cut pbs, yeah, to cut PBS, to PBS. Uh-huh.
5: by a lot mm-hmm. so when you're sinking it's very hard to say anything other than throw me a financial life preserver it's hard to say oh throw me something that i'm going to be able to see 20 years from now save me when they feel like they're drowning Because before then
2: you're dead you've drowned (laughs) there it is so what what so so andrew uh let me ask you is there you guys is there a formula for what makes a a successful company
4: I don't think there's a simple formula because uh, if there were, everybody would uh, want one and we'd
2: all be rich. Um, I think there are lots of – Yeah, and and the downside of that is what's the – you say that (laughs) as though (laughs) – and and your point is? Well, we're not going to all be rich. Why
4: not? Well, because there's a limited amount of resources and uh, we can't all get access to them.
2: Okay, but we can get rich while the whole rest of the world gets poor. That can happen. Sure. We it's can, true. We can, we You're can.
3: thinking of it too big. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I think of the universe, which has essentially unlimited resources. It's true. And plus, you could be rich in your heart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> uh,
3: uh, that's, is that the rich we're talking about? Is that how to use math to become rich in your heart?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, th- do people have hearts in the financial industry? Uh, Sometimes. Four of them at least. (laughs) (laughs) But I wouldn't say – Not how many chambers in their heart. I'm talking (laughs) about hearts. And so what I wonder is you have these things called hedge funds and other kinds of funds that are not just let me invest in some stocks. Mm -hmm. Are these good for the economy or bad? Well, you know, I think overall they're good.
4: They basically provide uh, you know, resources and uh, you know, liquidity, you know, when people want to buy uh Wait, things, so wait,
2: wait, tell me what a hedge fund is first.
4: Well, a hedge fund is sort of like mutual funds on steroids. It's uh investing where there's no constraints and where the investors are high net worth and sophisticated clients that can afford to lose a lot of money
2: so they can engage in pretty high risk strategies. This is like that room in the back at the at the in Vegas. The high rollers. The high roller table. So a
3: hedge fund is like a very risky mutual fund for wealthy people who are gambling.
4: uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) The amount
3: you resist calling it gambling and the amount that is gambling,
4: Uh, (laughs) I find charming. It's taking calculated bets.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. I don't mean like – I don't mean it's like uh, slot machines. I mean it's like poker. Well,
2: there's professional gambling and there's compulsive gambling. Right. And but if you have a million to drop, then you go into the back room and you you That's play. Right, what's yeah. it, baccarat? What's the what's the game in the back room? Oh, that? I don't know.
3: Sure, I like. <laughs> I like. The, you're asking me like, well, as someone who always loses a million dollars and doesn't care.
2: Well, billionaire, you can lose a million and not yeah. sweat it. Then it's
3: no fun to make a million. That's the problem with being a billionaire.
2: We've got to take a quick break, but more Star Talk when we return.
1: IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20 percent off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com/starttalk. Visit IXL.com/starttalk to get the most effective learning program out there at the
2: best price. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower. With a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeerecom slash getintheseat or
0: visit a dealer near you.
2: This is StarTalk Radio. Welcome back. I'm always curious what role emotion plays in people's decisions at all, but in particular in their decisions to invest. Now, Andrew, you had a story you started to tell us over the break about a Superman costume, and I have no idea how this will ultimately connect to the subject of this program, but I'll let you try.
4: Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, you, you know, we all come up with rules of thumb for how we make decisions. And uh, it's important to realize that emotions can be good or bad in helping us develop these rules of thumb. So the example that I often give my students is getting dressed in the morning. Suppose you have ten shirts and ten pairs of pants and two pairs of shoes. How many different outfits do you have with that kind of a wardrobe? It turns out that that simple wardrobe that I just described has 200 unique outfits. And so if you take a typical person's closet and figure out how to get dressed in the morning, it's an incredibly daunting job. If you tried to optimize the best outfit out of
2: all of those combinations, you would spend three or four days getting dressed. No, only if you're an MIT person that doesn't know how to match colors. Good point. All right, I would not be considering the purple with the green. Part. Well, you you know, and my wife tells if me respectfully, you
3: wouldn't have purple <laughs>
4: or green, yeah,
3: well, yeah. purple for sure, green probably <laughs> but, but the nice point is it green? The point is that people don't
4: optimize, they don 't use heavy duty mathematics, they basically use rules of thumb, and in my case. I get dressed really quickly. My wife – it drives my wife crazy. Uh, and the way that I get dressed quickly, the reason that I get dressed quickly is I had an event that happened to me when I was six years old. I grew up in a single-parent household in Queens, and uh, we didn't have a lot of extra money, but some clever marketing genius figured at the time that if you put a Superman emblem on a jacket, you can sell a lot of those jackets to six-year-old kids. So I nagged my mother for weeks on end to get me this jacket, and – ultimately, like any good mom, she gave in, and so she got me the jacket. I remember that day very clearly. It was a Friday night after work. She took me to Alexander's on Queens Boulevard, got the jacket, spent the weekend uh, playing around in it. Monday morning, stood in front of a mirror with the jacket, looking at how good I'm going to look at school, and I was late for school. I had to get a note from my mom, walked into the class late, And I had to give the note to my teacher, walk to my seat where all the students were snickering. But you had your Superman jacket. But I had my Superman jacket and I was completely mortified. And from that day on, it never took more than five minutes for me to get dressed in the morning. I learned a different rule of thumb based upon some pretty negative
2: emotional feedback. And you know it was negative because 46 years later, I still remember that day. So you were traumatized. That's the most traumatizing event in your life. you led a charmed life. Wait.
3: Yeah, wait. In your story, you were five minutes late as a sixth grader, and then you decided to go to Yale and Harvard? (laughs) Well, there's more. That's what you overcame? (laughs) There's
2: more to the story.
3: (laughs) Which is that you developed actual powers and responsibilities.
2: No, he developed Superman powers from having worn the jacket. Or at least I figured out how to get dressed very quickly. Let's see what Susie Orman says about the role of emotion in making financial decisions. What is the balance in your life experience between the analytic mind and the emotional mind in making financial decisions?
5: I think 100% it comes from emotions. But should it? (laughs) No, it should not.
2: It shouldn't, okay. The
5: three internal obstacles to wealth are the three emotions, fear, shame, and anger. And that is where people come from almost constantly when they're investing their money, which is why they have a negative experience when it comes to investing. The
2: victims of their own emotional Correct.
5: state. If they just were willing to take the emotions out of it and analyze it. Is this a good idea? Does it make sense? Can I relate to it? Is there a future in it? Do I like the management? That I've is-
2: met people that are. it's hard, if not impossible, for them to think that way. They're so emotionally driven.
5: And that's when they usually get a financial advisor that preys off of those emotions, and, uh, and then they become mm. really victims to their own circumstances. Mm. So, again, I will go back to it's better to do nothing than something that you do not understand.
2: That's quite a bit of wisdom there. Would you agree, Andrew? Absolutely. And so it's you, from what I know in our previous chats, it's part of your professional interest is, uh, is on decision-making and what role emotions play. The research, literature on this. And so what have you found? Well, one of the things we uh, – and, th- and does neuroscience, the, the new science of neuroscience influence what, it, what your work does?
4: Yeah, there's some fascinating intersections between neuroscience and evolutionary biology and finance. One of the things that we found is that emotion plays an incredibly important role, but the proper balance of emotion and logic has to be done. In other
2: words, too much emotion—that's bad—but too little emotion is also bad. But if you're a painter, a sculptor, or artist, too much emotion is good. It can be, unless nah. you're Vincent Van Gogh.
4: I think probably a
3: combination of both is really Still? helpful, okay. unless you're Vincent Van Gogh. But during his lifetime, it wasn't that great. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So, so there's some do, – do you know what the m- proper mixture is of emotion and logic? Well, we're actually documenting that now. We're doing experiments
4: with traders where we're measuring their emotional responses as they trade. Is it 65-35? Uh,
2: more <laughs> like 60-40. Uh, well, so oh, <laughs> off
4: by 5 well, percent.
2: So you're putting electrodes on the heads of traders as they make financial decisions. Exactly. Measuring brain activity.
4: Well, brain activity and also emotional state. We want to know how much of their emotional responses are actually feeding into
2: their trading decisions. So of the various emotional states, there's fear, anger, love. Uh, Do
3: you endanger their families and tell them (laughs) as they're trying to invest (laughs) Uh, uh, money that you – Not
4: yet.
2: (laughs) I mean do do you – are there – is there amorous emotions by – I mean what – are traders in love with – money?
4: Well, you know, at this point, you know, the science isn't that far along. What we can do is to measure something called uh, skin conductance, basically sweaty palms. Uh, you oh. know, if they've got some very strong reactions, the same kind of reactions that a lie detector test would show, what that's telling you is that they've got a strong emotional reaction. And it turns out that traders have emotional reactions like professional athletes, not too much, but not
2: too little within a range that actually helps them make better decisions. The sweaty palms. So, on your first date with someone, you get sweaty palms? What, Absolutely. What does that you're mean? a good
3: decision maker.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, there's a future to this that we can still learn from that you're researching.
3: So, if I invest money in the 401k I get, I'll know I'm making the right choice as I get sweatier. Just <laughs> uh, to be clear. Well, just,
4: there's just the right amount of sweat.
3: Just the right amount of sweat. There's exactly. a perfect amount of sweat. They'll be like yeah, this exactly. is a good choice. Wait, 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 wait.
2: And if a person is especially sweaty, you have to calibrate against their basic sweat level. That's right. So it's actually a very do you complicated take basics, process.
3: Is that true? Do you take basic sweat measurements yeah. of a we, person? You have to. We do. It's, we a do. Do. it's a we science do. experiment. Absolutely. Duh. I'm saying you yep. wouldn't I'm just,
4: <laughs> <laughs> just making sure that that's how you yep. approach people. You got to get the baseline.
2: Well, we've got to wrap up the show now, but I want to thank my guests. And as always, I want you to keep looking up.